Children's Church. We again are in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 32 to 33. This may help the children too. Everybody please stand as I read Matthew 15, beginning in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And the next verse, Jesus says, How many loaves do you have? And the disciples say, Seven and a few fish. And that's where we end for today. You may be seated. You know, the Bible has a lot of fish stories. Even in the Old Testament, like Jonah and the big fish, you know. And then Jesus fed the 5,000. Here he feeds the 4,000. You can have that Swedish fish, Mom, if you want it. <laughs> she, she found one on the floor there. <clears throat> They're chewy. Uh, but anyway, a lot of fish stories in the Bible. And one of the many things for which men are known is loving to fish. In fact, I heard a story about two men were fishing in a pond when a hearse and a funeral procession passed by. One of the men stood up, removed his hat until the procession passed. The other man said, wow, that was very nice. You really showed a lot of respect. To which the man standing said, well, I was married to her for 43 years. <laughs> See, he didn't go to the funeral. He went fishing. <laughs> okay. Well, early service thought it was funny. But anyway, let's look this morning at God can. God can. First of all, let's look at the response. It says there in verse 32 that Jesus looked at the crowd and he felt compassion for them. Now, let me tell you this word compassion, what it means in the Greek, it's an inward churning that results in outward action. So it's not just that you see something and you feel bad. You see something, you feel bad, and then you do something about it. Well, why was Jesus filled with compassion when he looked at this crowd? Well, because they, the crowd was hungry and the crowd was tired. And as we read the end of verse 32 there, Jesus was concerned that if he sent them home, they would faint on the way home because they were so tired and so hungry. Now, why were they so tired and hungry? Because it says there the crowd had been with him three days. They'd been with him three days. And what did he do with them during those three days? Well, verse 29 in reading in between the lines, it says that he taught them. He taught them. Now, it doesn't say there that Jesus taught them, but we know that's what Jesus did. He went everywhere and, and taught people. But the reason I say that Jesus taught them is that Jesus assumed the position of a teacher. First of all, he went up on a mountain like Moses did. And then he sat down, it says. Well, when you sat down on that day, that's how you taught. You would sit down and you would teach. And so Jesus assumed the position of teacher. In fact, Jesus' primary mission outside of the passion was preaching and teaching. Now, his main goal was to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. But beyond that, his primary mission was preaching and teaching. And by the way, this is also the church's primary mission. Some of Jesus' last words of the church are these in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so Jesus' primary mission outside of the passion was teaching and preaching, and it's also the church's primary mission as well. So Jesus taught them, verse 29, but the second thing Jesus did with them for three days, he healed them in verse 30. It mentions the people that he healed, the blind, the lame, the dumb, the maimed. The healing verified or validated Jesus' message. 
My friends, preaching and teaching must always take precedence over healing. Teaching and preaching must take precedence over healing. There are those groups out there and they focus on healing, healing, healing. Come here and get healed. But preaching and teaching must always take precedence over healing. And let me say this too, that Jesus is still healing today. Many of us in this room can testify that Jesus is still healing today. I am sitting here in front of you today, right now, because Jesus is still healing people. And if I wanted to show off, I could walk for you right now. But I don't want to show off. But this is more evidence that Jesus is still in the business of healing. And so the crowd had been with him three days. They were tired. They were hungry. He taught them. He healed them. For three days. How often do we fuss if the preacher goes past noon? It gets to be 12.01, 12.02, or 5 after 12, God forbid. When's he going to shut up? I don't know if you've heard of Asbury College down in Kentucky. Now, this is a Wesleyan school. Two Wednesdays ago, not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, they had just a normal chapel service, Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday morning. It's still going on right now. People are still singing. They're still reading Scripture. I was leery of it, and so was the president of the Kentucky Baptist Convention. But he heard about it, and he decided to go see what was going on. And his report is what is happening there is genuine. It's legit. But if you're just concerned that the preacher goes past noon, how would you like to go to church service that's been going on now for a week and a half? 24 hours a day, non-stop. Well, anyway, Jesus only had these folks for three days. They were tired. They were hungry. He looked at them. He had compassion. He had that inward churning, but he wanted to do something about it. And so he makes a request. He looks at his disciples. He said, you guys feed the crowd in verse 32. Feed the crowd. Now, as I mentioned, there were 4,000 men. That's verse 38. But there were also women and children, perhaps 10,000 or more people total. If you look in verse 32, Jesus said he was determined. He was not going to send them away hungry. You see, Jesus understood the relationship between the physical and the spiritual. You can't minister to somebody spiritually when their physical needs are unmet. That is why most Christian ministries that feed people usually require the recipients to attend worship, but only after they've eaten. Because if somebody's sitting there and their stomach is growling and all they can think of is how hungry they are, it doesn't matter who's preaching and what the preacher says, all they can focus on is their need. And so Christian feeding ministries, yes, they say you have to stay for church, but we're going to feed you first. And safe nights, that Courtney was mentioning, works the same way. We feed them first and then we have an opportunity to minister to them. Because if their stomachs are growling... They're super hungry. They're probably not going to hear a word we say otherwise. And Jesus understood that. And so that's why Jesus met both needs. He met their physical need of hunger. But he also met their spiritual need by sharing with them his word, which is the word of God. So we see the response. Jesus is filled with compassion. He wants to do something about it. Then we see his request. He looks at his disciples. He said, okay, guys, feed them. But let's look at their reaction next. In verse 33, the disciples are incredulous. How can we feed all these people? Uh, don't forget, look around. We're in the wilderness, Jesus. You talk about eating out. That's what Jesus wanted these people to eat out. 
They were out. They were in the wilderness. And the disciples are incredulous. How can we feed these people? Now here's what's really hard to understand. And that is that Jesus had recently fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. That's in chapter 14. We're just in chapter 15 now. In chapter 14, he had just fed the crowd of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Now he said, let's do it again. But there's only 4,000 people. We have more bread and we have more fish. And the disciples say, how are we supposed to do this? The disciples' question indicates that either they had already forgotten what Jesus had just done. And by the way, that's a real possibility because back over in chapter 16, just a little bit to our future, look what Jesus says to them. He said, do you not understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? He said, don't you guys remember? So their question, how are we supposed to do this, indicates they have already forgotten or they had not yet learned not to underestimate Jesus. You know, you may be discouraged right now. I don't know. But you may be here and discouraged right now. Let me ask you this. Have you forgotten what God has already done for you? And that's where the disciples were. They forgot that just previously Jesus fed 5,000 with less bread and less fish. Have you forgotten what God has already done for you? Are you underestimating Him? Don't forget who Jesus is. He's God. Don't underestimate Him. Well, He asked the disciples to do something that was humanly impossible. Take seven loaves and a few fish and feed a crowd of maybe 10,000. But you know, Jesus still demands that we do the humanly impossible today. Jesus demands that we forgive others. That is not humanly possible. He demands that we pray for our enemies. That is not humanly possible. He demands that we live holy lives. That is not humanly possible. But he still demands that we do it because he knows by his grace, with his help, we can forgive others. We can pray for our enemies. We can live holy lives. And so we see the response. Jesus is just overwhelmed with compassion. And so he makes a request, feed these people. The disciples' reaction is, well, how are we supposed to feed these people? Let's look at the resources. Jesus asked, well, what do we have? And the disciples report they have seven loaves and a few little fish. Hardly enough to feed the disciples themselves. Definitely not enough to feed an overflow crowd. But there's another resource that people often skip over. Not only was there seven loaves and a few fish, there was prayer. I don't know if you noticed there, but it says Jesus takes the bread and he gave thanks. That means he prayed. Now, did he just say, Father, thank you? Well, maybe. Or maybe he had more to say. It's just not recorded. Do you realize the Bible never requires us to pray before eating? Now, that is a Christian thing to do. We pray before we eat. And I'm not knocking it, but the Bible never requires us to do so. Jesus set the example here and elsewhere. And certainly when you pray before eating, it is a witness at home. It is a witness in public. I encourage you to always pray before you eat, but I don't want you to think it's a biblical requirement. And the second thing I want to leave with you, never underestimate the power of prayer. 
Never underestimate the power of prayer. Now, James writes about this in James 5.16. It says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Never underestimate the power of prayer. Notice how James says we are to pray. First of all, he says we are to pray effectually. Effectually. It says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. So we are to pray effectually. Now, the word effectually comes from the Greek word energeo, from which we get the Greek English word energy. It is not that we pray energetically. James is saying that our prayers produce energy, our prayers produce action, our prayers produce power. And so we are to pray effectually, but secondly, we are to pray successfully. It says that the fervent righteous prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's successful. Be encouraged, my friends. Prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. As we sincerely pray for ourselves and others, God will bring about change according to His will. But keep this in mind too. Sometimes God brings His change in us. Sometimes prayer changes the prayer. The one who's doing the praying is the one who needs to be changed. The one who's doing the praying actually is causing the problem themselves. So sometimes prayer changes the prayer. So James says we are to pray effectually. We are to pray successfully. It availeth much. And thirdly, we are to pray righteously. It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now we become righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. That Jesus was buried for our sins. And the third day Jesus rose again from the dead. When we truly receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, He makes us righteous. He gives us His righteousness. But the Bible is clear. We must be confessed up before our prayers are lifted up. And so you not only need to be righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but you need to confess your sins. Be confessed up before your prayers are lifted up. We must be right with God. Now the other adverbs encourage us. Being right instructs us. And here's the thing. If we are right with God, our prayers will be effectual and our prayers will be successful. As I mentioned earlier, I am sitting in front of you today because of the grace of God and the prayers of God's people. You pray here at this church, but others have been praying for me all over the place. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, we were at a restaurant and I got the receipt that it was expensive and I didn't like how much it was. And so I was complaining to Debbie about how much this was. And somebody came by and snatched the receipt and said, here, I need to fix that for you. Well, I thought it was somebody that worked at the restaurant and they knew that there was a problem. They were going to fix it. Well, this man comes back a few minutes later, hands us the receipt. It's been paid in full. And he says, it's fixed now. He says, you don't know me, but my church and I have been praying for you. Never underestimate the power of prayer. And if you need proof that prayer works, look at me. And like I said, if I wanted to show off, I could walk this aisle. In fact, my daughter asked me that. She said, are you going to walk the aisle at church Sunday? I said, well, not, not yet, not yet. My friends, Jesus asked, what's our resources? What do we have? Well, we've got seven loaves, got a few fish. But he had prayer. 
Never underestimate the power of prayer. And size is not a factor. Uh, Nothing is too small to bring to God. Nothing is too large to bring to God. All they had was seven loaves. And by the way, don't think of a loaf of bread. That still wouldn't be enough. These were like little round pita bread things. They had seven of those and probably three fish. Nothing is too small. Nothing's too large. Because God does more with what we bring than we ever could. And in fact, we operate on that principle here at First Baptist Church. We work with the cooperative program, Southern Baptist Missionary Sending Agency. If it were up to each individual church to keep a missionary and his family on the field, most churches probably couldn't even keep one. But working together with other Southern Baptist churches, we send thousands of missionaries all around the world. Each church gives a little. God multiplies it. And we have missionaries literally to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's be frank here this morning. Maybe as you're thinking what you would have to bring to God. Maybe all you have to bring to God is your sinful life. That's all you got. You don't have any money. You don't have any talents to speak of. But you have your sinful life. Bring it. And listen to this. He will take it. He will save it. He will clean it. And he'll keep it. You bring your sinful life. If that's all you got, he'll take it. He'll save it. He'll clean it. He'll keep it. It's like that old saying they attribute to Jesus. It's not scriptural. But Jesus says, you catch them, I'll clean them. You catch them, I'll clean them. And that's our job, evangelizing. That's our job, sending missionaries We are doing what we can do to catch them. To invite people to Jesus Christ. When they come to Christ, He cleans them. We catch them. So we've seen this morning the the response. Jesus is filled with compassion. So He makes this request. Hey, let's feed these people. Disciples' reaction. Hey, how are we supposed to do this? He says, what do we have? What's our resources? Well, only the disciples mention bread and fish. But there was prayer. Let's look at the results. Everyone ate and was full. It says there everyone was satisfied. But the word in Greek for full means gorged. These people gorged themselves with bread and fish. Now, most people back then never got full. You know how you feel after Thanksgiving dinner? You're like, well, I'm not doing that next time. You know how you feel? They never felt that way. Most people back then never felt that way. These people felt that way that day. They were gorged with bread and fish. This was a miracle inside of a miracle. Jesus not only did the miracle so that everybody could get a bite to eat, Jesus did the miracle so that everybody not only got a bite to eat, they got gorged. Our children used to have this little tape they would listen to when we were in the car. You younger people, you don't know what a tape is, but it's like a CD or it's like an MP3. Yeah, forget it. Anyway, Google it. But it was about the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. It wasn't this miracle, but I still like it. And here's how the verse went. Just five loaves and two fish in the hands of the Lord is a big, big dish. One little boy gave away his lunch and Jesus let 5,000 munch. I love that. I love that. And it's got a whole tune, but I'm not going to sing to you. Everyone ate and was full. Perhaps for the very first time in their lives. Maybe the last time in their lives did they eat and were full. 
And know this, please, my friends, all who come to Jesus will be eternally satisfied. John 6.35, Jesus is speaking. He's talking about... He's talking about food and water, but he's really not. He's talking about himself. He says, those who are hungry, let them come. Those who are thirsty, let them come. I will satisfy you eternally and spiritually. So what were the results? Well, everyone ate and was full. Secondly, there were leftovers. There were seven baskets full left over. This was good food, not scraps. And I want you to know the Greek word for the word basket there. These were baskets that were large enough to hold a person. In fact, the same word is used in Acts chapter 9 and verse 25 where Paul is let down over the wall in a basket. So we're not talking about there are just a few little pieces of bread, some crumbs left over. There are all these huge baskets that could hold a person full of leftovers. For what? Well, the leftovers could be used to bless others. So my friends, learn today. Never underestimate God. Never underestimate God. I was preaching on a mission trip one time in Mexico. And I don't know if you've ever spoken with an interpreter before, but you say a few words and then you let them translate. Then you say a few words and you let them translate. It goes back and forth the whole time. Well, when I use this word underestimate, I noticed there was a long pause. And then finally the interpreter caught up. And so afterwards, I asked the interpreter, I said, I noticed that at one point when I said underestimate, it was a long pause. What was that all about? He said, well, Spanish doesn't have a word for underestimate. He said, I had to make something up. I said, well, I hope whatever you made up means don't underestimate. But my friends, I know you know what it means. Never underestimate God. First of all, His power. He fed the 4,000 and had leftovers. Think about his creation. He spoke the universe into existence. That's power. He knows your needs. He knows your concerns. He has the power to provide for them. And he has the resources to provide for them. And my friends, let's be frank here. If God can't help you, who can? If God can't help you, who can? Never underestimate God. Never underestimate his power. Never underestimate his plan. God has a good plan for his people. We can't always readily see what he's doing. When I first came out of the coma, and Debbie told me everything that was wrong with me, everything that was broken, I couldn't readily see what God was doing. It didn't make any sense to me at all. It's starting to make a little bit of sense now. But we can't always readily see what he's doing, but we can rest assured he is in control. Never underestimate his plan. God already has everything figured out. Only he can see your future. And he has already provided for your needs there. Our job is to trust him by faith. Never underestimate his power. Never underestimate his plan. Never underestimate his passion. God loves you without condition where you are now. Regardless of where you've been, He loves you where you are right now without condition. And we've already learned from verse 32, He's compassionate. 
Whatever your needs are, whatever your concerns are, he's compassionate. He has a looks at you. He has that inward churning, but he wants to do something about it, and he will. And he will provide for your needs, just like he provided for the needs of these people in verse 37. They not only got a bite to eat, they got full. And God demonstrated his love for you, his passion for you when he sent his son to die on the cross. Paul writes this in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated, commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Never underestimate God. Never underestimate his power. Never underestimate his plan. Never underestimate his passion. He loves you right where you are regardless of where you've been. And so my friends, remember this. God does the miraculous. He brings much out of little. He brings good out of bad. He turns sorrow into joy. He brings healing from sickness. He brings peace in the midst of strife. God does the miraculous. And something else I want you to learn from this passage, and that is that God blesses through breaking. He blesses through breaking. For instance, verse 36, the loaves and the fish for nutrition. Jesus' body by crucifixion and our wills in salvation. God blesses through breaking. And so if He breaks you, like He broke me, know there's a blessing. Because God blesses through breaking. So we've seen the response. Jesus was filled with compassion. And so He makes a request of His disciples. He says, hey, feed these people. Their reaction, how are we supposed to do this? He says, well, what are our resources? What do we have? Well, some bread and fish. But Jesus knew there was prayer as well. And so we looked at the results. Everybody ate and was full. There was leftovers to bless others. So here's the recap. Jesus did the important. He fed the crowd God's word. Remember, that's the first thing. For three days they were there and he taught them. He also healed them, but he taught them. He did the important thing. He fed the crowd God's word. Then Jesus asked the impossible. He tells the disciples, feed the crowd. And then Jesus performed the incredible. He fed the crowd. 4,000 men plus women and children. 10,000 or more. Starting with seven loaves and a few, maybe three, fish. Jesus did the important. He asked the impossible. He performed the incredible. This Jesus, who did this amazing miracle, is my Savior. But what I don't know here today is, is He your Savior? Have you received this Jesus as your personal Savior, believing He died on the cross for your sins, that He was buried for your sins, and He rose again the third day? Because while He is my Savior, He's not only my Savior, He can be everybody's Savior. You've got to receive Him. Have you received Christ as your personal Savior? And if you have, like I have, how's your faith? Are you underestimating Him? Do you think there are some things maybe He can't do? Go back and look at this story. He started out with some bread and fish and he fed maybe 10,000 or more people. Because he's God, he could do anything. All you and I need to do is trust him. 
So the invitation this morning is simple. Receive him as your Savior. And if you've received him, trust him. Trust him. He's got it all figured out. And even if he breaks you, like he broke me, know there's a blessing coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this miracle. We've heard this miracle over and over and over and over. And yet it still speaks fresh to us. And use this miracle to change lives in this room. There might be some people here who've never yet received Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Give them grace and faith to believe. And for those of us who have received him, may we continue to believe. May we continue to trust putting all our hope, all our faith, all our trust in you. Because there's one thing you cannot do, and that is fail. And we're thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation this morning...